You are now listening to the September 25th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have The Seven Signs, A Sermon, and The God of Abraham. First, let's begin with The Seven Signs. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. This is Brian Winston with The Seven Signs. We have shared Jesus' seven signs over the past 12 weeks. Can you remember them? These signs are often called miracles, but we have tried to look at the meaning behind these miracles as signs that Jesus wanted to impart to us. The books of Matthew, Mark, and Luke are known as the Synoptic Gospels, and they focus on what Jesus did In other words, the miracles themselves. In contrast, the book of John focuses on what those miracles signify. In other words, we studied how these miracles inform us in regards to who Jesus was to the Jews at the time and who he is to us today. Apostle John tells us clearly what his reason was for writing the book of John. His remarks appear in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. John wished us to learn about Jesus through his miracles, that Jesus is the Son of God and the Messiah. He wanted us to have eternal life by knowing Him for who He is and through our faith in Him. That is why we have studied the seven signs of Jesus during the past 12 weeks and learned what those miracles signified. Today, we will try to wrap things up by reviewing the seven signs and reminding ourselves of what we learned. The first sign involved turning the water into wine at the wedding in Cana. We shared that wine symbolizes happiness and blessing. At that time, the people of Israel believed on the day when the promised Messiah comes, the wine would be plentiful. So Jesus' first sign of turning water into wine at the wedding in Cana was the sign that he was the Messiah from God. By providing bountiful wine to people, Jesus disclosed his true identity and proclaimed the start of his ministry. John chapter 2 verse 11 says that Jesus' disciples believed in him when they saw this first sign. The second sign of Jesus involves Jesus healing a boy remotely without traveling there. He healed a royal official's son who lived in Capernaum simply by word. Isaiah chapter 9 records the prophecy of how God would glorify the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, where Capernaum in Galilee is located. On this land, which was being despised, a bright light would shine. They were in long darkness, and a child would be born to them. The government, resting on his shoulder, and his name called Wonderful Counselor, The Bible records how Jesus was tempted by the devil and went to Galilee after triumphing over the devil's temptations. 
Jesus fulfilled the prophecy of shining the light in Galilee as God has promised. Jesus' third sign in John chapter 5 shows Jesus healing a sick man by the pool of Bethesda, who had been sick for 38 years. We shared that the focus of this sign was not the healing itself, but the ensuring conversation Jesus had with the Jews subsequent to this miracle. In John chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus answered the Jews who were trying to persecute him for doing work on the Sabbath. My Father is working until now, and I myself am working. By calling God his Father, rather than calling him the Lord, as would be expected in the Jewish culture, Jesus revealed that he was the Son of God and how he was equal to God. The fourth sign we considered was the miracle of feeding 5,000 men. This miracle is recorded in all four books of the Gospel. This particular miracle serves as a sign that we can attain eternal life by eating the true bread, Jesus Christ. God cares for his people who came out of the world just as he fed the Israelites for 40 years after they came out of Egypt to sustain their lives. Here is what Jesus says about himself in John chapter 6, verse 58. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. The fifth sign of Jesus is the miracle of Jesus walking on the water. It is recorded in John chapter 6. No human can walk on the water, but Jesus' disciples witnessed that with their own eyes. It was a sign that clearly showed Jesus is not a mere human, but the Son of God. When Jesus' disciples saw Jesus walking on the water towards them, they confessed that Jesus is certainly God's Son. Their confession appears in Matthew chapter 14, verse 33. The sixth sign had us witness the opening of the eyes of a man who was born blind. This miracle happened on the last day of the Feast of the Booths, which fell on the Sabbath. We shared that the Feast of the Booths had two significances. The first was about water. People were asking God for water while waiting for the rain to come for the bountiful harvest of the fruits, such as olives, figs, and grapes. The second involved light. People were waiting for the light that would shine the darkness. The timing of the Feast of Booths coincided with the winter solstice, after which the days get shorter and the nights get longer. For these reasons, people went to the pool of Siloam and fetched water to pour on the altar, and they lit the temple with four large candle stands filled with olive oil during the Feast of Booths. On the last day of the Feast of Booths, Jesus made a declaration to people to come to him and take a drink from him, if anyone is thirsty. He also promised that whoever follows him would not walk in darkness because he is the light of the world. Then, by opening the eyes of the man who was born blind, he demonstrated that he is God the Creator who came to give a new set of eyes to us, who were all born blind, so that we could see the coming of his everlasting kingdom. In the last and seventh sign, Jesus resurrected Lazarus. When that happened, it had already been three full days since his death, and everyone had lost hope. 
To be clear, Jesus brought Lazarus back to life on the fourth day. Through this sign, Jesus is showing us that he is the resurrection and the life. When conducting the sign, Jesus showed it to everyone at Lazarus's funeral. It was to keep his promise that the only sign that he could show to the Jews and Pharisees was the sign of Jonah. Just as Jonah was resurrected after being dead for three days in the stomach of a fish, Jesus resurrected Lazarus, who was in the tomb for a whole three days. And eventually, extending the significance of this seventh sign, Jesus himself was dead and buried for three full days and resurrected on the fourth day. He ultimately gave us the sign of Jonah. Jesus demonstrated to us that he is the resurrection that defeated the death authority. By witnessing this, we can now confess that he is the life. Just as Apostle John said, each and every sign he recorded witnesses to us that Jesus is the Son of God. Whoever believes in these signs and proofs these signs represent will have an eternal life through the name of Jesus. Do you accept the true meanings behind the signs Jesus gave us? Do you believe and trust that Jesus is the Son of God and is equal to God? We pray that the work of Jesus, who delivers us to life from death, is in us, all through His grace. This concludes the lessons from Signs of Jesus. Thank you for listening, and God bless.
shirt Turn your cheek Turn your cheek Bear the yoke Of love and death The Lord won't give All life and breath Because of Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor David Platt of Radical. Today's topic is the dangerous habit of not meeting together. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor David. Some of you may remember earlier this year, we did a series called From Surviving to Thriving, had a couple lemon trees up here talked about what it takes to nurture growth. And at one point in that series, Pastor Mike and I read from Hebrews chapter 10 and we walked through 12 traits of a biblical church that we talk a lot about around NBC that God has designed for each of us to thrive in our relationship with him. I want to bring us back to that text, but I want us to pay particularly close attention to the language at the very end of this passage. I'll put it up here on the screen. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 says, Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, basically what verses 19 through 21 there just summarized is the gospel, the good news that God has made a way for us to be reconciled to relationship with him, to be forgiven of our sin by Jesus' death on the cross, resurrection from the grave. In light of that, in light of this good news, verse 22 says, let us, and you're going to notice three times the author of Hebrews uses this phrase, let us. So this is what God in his word is calling us to do together. So the us is the church here. Let us draw near to God with a true heart and full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promises faithful. Then verse 24 says, let 
us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not, so watch this language, neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, obviously, these verses were not written after a year of global pandemic, but they were written during a day and a time when many followers of Jesus had gotten into the habit of not meeting together. They were neglecting to meet together, and it become the habit of some, which I think makes this text very applicable to our day, knowing that we live in a day where it has become the habit of some, I would say many, again, to an extent we've encouraged that, but now we've developed this habit of not meeting together that God in his word warns us against. And it's really interesting this language, when it says to consider how to stir up one another, and you don't really catch this in the English, but consider actually goes directly to, in the original language, next to one another. And this word consider means to give careful attention to one another, to give, to express deep concern for one another. And when you think about it, I was thinking about just meditating on this text, that's actually the reason we've not gathered together out of consideration for each other, out of concern for the safety and well-being of each other. Or that's the reason why we've gathered in limited ways with protocols in place that have been uncomfortable for many of us, but we've done it out of concern for each other because we've considered each other. But by God's mercy, things are changing around us. And I don't say that lightly at all. It is by God's mercy that things are changing around us. I look at places like India right now where COVID has been spreading like wildfire and many people are dying, including family members. I think of one sister from India in our church family whose family in India right now is being ravaged by COVID. Or I think about Arlen, who one of our pastors here at Tyson's, who you heard from earlier, he recently went to Cameroon for the funeral of his dad who had died of COVID and his dad's brother did the funeral and then a week later contracted and died of COVID. So by no means is this pandemic over in the world, far from it. But by God's mercy, we're in a part of the world where vaccinations, vaccinations are available, who want or choose to get that. And by God's mercy, we're at a point where as best as we know, loosening restrictions and protocols seems good and right as we consider one another. So for that reason, I want to encourage you and us together as a church family. It's time to break this habit of neglecting to meet together. If you are a part of NBC Church family here in Metro Washington, D.C., I want to encourage you today to begin moving back toward physically gathering with the church as it's appropriate possible at your location. And then if you're not a part of NBC, maybe you've been joining in from beyond Metro Washington, D.C., 
I hope that joining in during this last year has been an encouragement to you spiritually. It has been awesome to have so many people joining in from different states and countries around the world every week. There's a sense in which we have loved that. And our services will continue to be archived. The sermons are on podcasts, tons of resources at mclanebible.org and radical.net. We want to be an encouragement to you and the broader church, but we don't want to be a substitute for what God has designed a local, physical, in the flesh church near you to do in your relationship with Him and with others one another in the church. I realize that saying this may reduce our online numbers, but I, we want far more for you to be in a living, breathing church gathering where you are on a week-by-week basis because this is what it means to be the church. And I realize even that statement may sound foreign to some, outdated even, Many people might think, 21st century, new day, world's been turned upside down. We can just do church from home or wherever else online. Can't we hear God's word and worship and grow in Christ from here? Actually, in a lot of ways that are better for me or my family, for whatever reason, can't I just do church from a distance? And again, if you are bedridden, If you are deployed for a time or traveling one week, church from a distance may be your only option. But for most of us, we have the option of gathering physically with a church. And where we have that option, God in his word calls us to meet together. That's the language to draw near to God together, to hold fast to our hope Together, let us draw near, let us hold fast, and let us consider how to stir one another up, not neglecting to meet together. Apparently, according to Hebrews chapter 10, these things can't happen, drawing near and holding fast and considering one another and stirring up one another to love and good works if we are neglecting to meet together. The implication of this text seems to be clear that God has designed helpful, good things to happen in your life and in others' lives in the church when you meet together. And neglecting to meet together actually leads to unhelpful, dangerous things in your life. And when you just hear this straight from the Word, knowing that even as I say that, some of you might think, Yeah, I'm not convinced that I can't just do church as well from here as if I was there. You may even wonder, are you trying to cajole me into coming back to church? And I assure you, I have no desire to cajole you, as my mom might say, to sweet talk someone into doing something. I only want to encourage you to do something if God in his word is encouraging you to do something. Don't Listen to anything a pastor encourages you to do if they cannot show it to you in God's Word. So let's ask that question together. Does God in His Word tell us to meet together, to physically gather together, 
as his church in a way that cannot normally be accomplished if we're distant from one another. That certainly seems to be what Hebrews 10, 25 is saying, but let's look a little deeper. Let's go cover to cover in the Bible, and I think we'll see the answer is yes. That from beginning to end in the Bible, God tells his people over the course of century after century after century to physically assemble together for their good and for his glory. It's interesting. Even the word for church in the Bible, ecclesia, literally means an assembly. In other words, it's part of the essence of the church to assemble together, which means that if a church doesn't normally assemble, that it's not actually a church. Church, by its very nature, necessitates assembling. And this has been true throughout the history of God's people, even before God's people were a church. Remember when God formed his people, the people of Israel in the Old Testament? He delivered them out of slavery in Egypt. This is what we've been reading about in our Bible reading together as a church family. And he physically gathered them together at Mount Sinai to behold his glory, to hear his word. And then listen to the way the Bible describes that moment when God entered into covenant relationship with his people. Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 10, Moses says, And the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone written with the finger of God, and on them were all the words that the Lord had spoken with you on the mountain out of the midst of the fire on the day of the what? Of the assembly. This word assembly becomes the common way that God's people are described all throughout the Old Testament, an assembly, a physical gathering of people. Let me just give you a few examples throughout the history of God's people. You might write them down. Judges chapter 20, verse 2, and the chiefs of all the people of all the tribes of Israel presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God. First Kings chapter 8, verse 14, and the king turned around and blessed while all the assembly of Israel stood. They're assembled together. This is the dedication of the temple. First Chronicles 28, verse 8. Now, therefore, in the sight of all Israel, the assembly of the Lord. That's who God's people are described as, the assembly of the Lord. And in the hearing of our God, observe and seek out all the commandments of the Lord your God. You may possess this good land and leave it for an inheritance to your children after you forever. One more, Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1. All the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, this assembly of God's people. So this was the pattern of God's people all throughout the Old Testament. And what's interesting is, so most of the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew. Most of the New Testament was originally written in Greek. And you'll never guess what the Greek translation of this Old Testament word assembly is. It's ecclesia, the word that the New Testament uses to describe the church. When the Bible describes a local church, God in his word says, here's what a local church is. It's an assembly. It's a gathering of people, which is why you then see phrases all over the New Testament about the church physically being gathered together. There are tons of places I could show you this. For the sake of time, I'll just camp out in the book that we're walking through right now, 1 Corinthians. Listen to the language that the Bible uses here. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 18. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, to be a church 
involves coming together. First Corinthians chapter 14, verse 23. The, if therefore the whole church comes together. See the connection between assembly coming together? Church is described as a meeting together. Listen to 1 Corinthians 14, 19. Nevertheless, in church. Now he's not talking about a particular building. He's talking about in this assembly. When the church is gathered together, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. So in church, he's talking about an event, a meeting, a gathering of God's people, what he does in that gathering. 1 Corinthians 14, 28 uses the same language, and we'll study this more when we get to this part of 1 Corinthians about speaking in tongues, but just listen to language for now. For if there's no one to interpret, let each of them be silent in church, in the assembly, and speak to himself and to God. In church. Now, this language makes total sense when you think about what the church is and what the church does. The church is not just a group of isolated individuals distant from one another. The church is a group of people that gathers together and they do things with one another that they can't normally do apart from each other. So just think about those 12 traits of a biblical church that we talk about at NBC. Biblical preaching and teaching. We might think, well, can I just listen to biblical preaching and teaching online? And absolutely you can. I do. I listen to others teach God's word during the week. I would encourage you to listen to as much biblical teaching as will help you grow in Christ. But do you remember that picture among God's people all throughout the Old Testament when they would assemble together to hear his word? Like they did at Mount Sinai, like they did. Let me read again, Nehemiah 8, 1 and 2. All these people gathered as one man in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra the scribe, bring the book of the law of Moses. Like bring out the book that the Lord has commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly. And the rest of that passage goes on to talk about how they all heard God's word together in this assembly. Now, one of my favorite passages in the Old Testament, actually, it's a passage I remember reading in my quiet time when God renewed my desire and calling to pastor in a local church. Second Chronicles 20, 34, verses 29 and 30. Listen to this language. The king, King Josiah, sent and gathered all, together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. And the king went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the Levites, all the people, both great and small, they're all coming together. And what did he do? He read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. They assembled together to hear God's word. They didn't just spread it out in different places. They assembled together to hear it. So with that picture in the Old Testament, then it's no surprise turn the page of the New Testament and to read in a place like Colossians chapter 3 verse 16 let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God just read that teaching and admonishing one another singing psalms hymns and spiritual songs like that can't happen teaching and admonishing one another singing psalms hymns and spiritual songs to one another if you're not with one another so yes we can be taught the bible at different times but at some point we gather like god's people have gathered throughout history together to hear god's word 
And this has been the pattern of God's people since the beginning of the Bible. The same goes for biblical prayer. Of course, you and I can and should pray all the time alone. But from the very beginning of the church in Acts chapter 4, verse 24, we read this. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, they start praying. The church was constantly gathering together to pray, to fast. Biblical discipleship involves being together, sharing life together. We've talked before about how Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 through 9, gives us a powerful picture of Old Testament discipleship, when the Bible says, these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontless between your eyes. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Obviously, talking about the word like this encouraging one another with the word, helping each other obey the commands of God, that necessitates sharing a life together, being together. Which, by the way, I would say even the mention of children here is one of the things that our location pastors are talking about today that I want to mention to you. As we open up more and more, we're opening up more and more ministry to children, students, those with special needs in different ways at different locations, which requires more and more people in our church family to teach God's Word to children and students and those with special needs and to help them grow in their relationships with God. We place a priority as a church family here at NBC on passing the good news of who God is and what God has done on to the next generation, which involves all of us working together toward that end. So I want to challenge you not just to come back to a church gathering, but come back to church serving. Even this summer, if we're going to open up more, we need more people to step up and serve children, students, those with special needs. I want to call every member of our church family to be a part of that work. This involves all of us, single adults, married adults, Young adults, senior adults, with kids, without kids, doesn't matter. We need all hands on deck to serve if we're going to be the church that God has designed us to be, helping each other grow in Christ. Nobody can sit on the sidelines on this thing. Everybody engaged in doing Hebrews 10, meeting together to encourage one another in a way that you can't do from your living room. This is one of the reasons we physically gathered together for biblical discipleship in each other's lives and biblical evangelism. Now again, this is something we can do and need to do in our living rooms, in our homes, wherever we work, wherever we go in the city, wherever we go in the world. Yes, we need to share the gospel, but we also gather together physically to proclaim the gospel and to lead people to Jesus. We invite people who don't know Jesus to come to church to this assembly with us so they might hear the gospel. Biblical evangelism happens when we come together as a church, not just when we scatter together. Then biblical fellowship. 
think the 59 one another commands that we see in Scripture, almost all of them necessitate being together. Think Romans chapter 12, verse 4. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have all the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. We're going to talk about biblical membership in a second, but just kind of see how these go together. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Look at all those things. Those things aren't happening in your living room or from behind a screen. Those things are happening when the church meets together as members of a body, of an assembly. So I'll go ahead and put it up there, biblical membership. That text, one body, many members. To be a part, to be a member of a church is to be a part, a member of an assembly, of a people who come together under, keep going, biblical leadership. We've talked about this before, but think about passages like Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, where God says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. So who are your leaders? God's telling you to obey leaders in the church. Who are they? They're the pastors, elders, overseers, the deacons, the leaders of the assembly where you meet, the people who are keeping watch over your souls. There's so much we could talk about here, but we will be talking about just a couple weeks from now, including some concentrated time in 1 Corinthians, talking about men and women in the church and elders and pastors and overseers in the church. I'll just say at this point, we are working very hard, have been this last year and will be all the more in the next couple months as we start to reopen. We want to get to the point where every single member of the NBC church family is known and prayed for and cared for by a pastor. I hear all the time, I don't know the elders or the pastors of my church, and obviously it's not possible for every single elder or pastor to know every single person in a church this size, but we are going to work to raise up pastors all across our church family to the point where every member of this body is known and cared for in a Hebrews 13, 17 kind of way when we meet together. Again, the point for now is like Hebrews 13, 17 can't happen when we're isolated from one another. The same is true for biblical accountability and discipline. Think about Matthew chapter 18 where Jesus teaches us about church accountability and discipline. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault just between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. So that's happening outside of the gathering of the church. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established, the, uh, the evidence of two or three witnesses, again, outside of the assembly. But then listen to this, verse 17, if he refuses to listen even to this small group, tell it to the church. The assembly, the people of God gathered together. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. The word Jesus uses for church there is ecclesia, assembly, which is why when you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the Bible's talking about doing this hard, loving work in the church. Listen to the language there. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, who just said what we read in 
Matthew 18, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Again, ton we could talk about there. We've studied this passage before in 1 Corinthians that should say 5, not 15, 4 and 5. But the whole picture here is this process of church discipline and accountability happens when we are assembled as the church. So you're seeing this assembling, gathering together is necessary, not optional, to be who the church is and to do what the church does. Let me show you these last four traits. Certainly this is the case in biblical worship. We've already read this in Colossians chapter 3. I'll show it to you one other place as well. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 18. And do not get drunk on wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Did you hear that language? Addressing one another. When we sing, we're not just singing to a screen or we're not just singing into the air. Like we sing, yes, songs of praise to God, but we also sing songs of encouragement to one another. With our psalms and hymns and our spiritual songs. So is it possible to worship God on your own, to sing on your own from your living room or wherever you might be? Yes. But God has designed for us to address one another. This is his word in the church through psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That can only happen when we're meeting together. And again, this has been the case for God's people throughout history. Tons of places we could go to, but maybe to summarize it, Psalm chapter 95, verse 1, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Let's do this together. Verse 6, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. We are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. We do, this is what we do when we meet together. We make noise together. We, and it's more noise than it is when it's just one of us alone. Like we make noise together. We sing loud songs of praise to God. Make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. In worship, we are meeting together before God. And just let that soak in. There's a meeting happening between a group of people, an assembly of people, and God. You know what that, that's called in the Bible? It's called church. The final trait of a biblical church is biblical mission. So, obviously, this happens as we're making disciples of the nations, going places where the gospel's not yet gone. But in the Bible, let me ask you this question. Where does it start? This impulse to go to the nations, this sending out of missionaries to other places. Where does it start? Look at Acts chapter 13, verse 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, in this gathering of the church, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Biblical mission begins when the church gathers for worship and prayer and fasting and the Holy Spirit speaks in that gathering 
in ways that leads to the spread of the gospel among the nations. Are you getting the picture here? I just take an honest look at God's word. The church cannot be who God has designed the church to be. The church cannot do what God has designed the church to do. We just looked at all these traits of a biblical church. This can't happen if followers of Jesus neglect meeting together. If they, verse 25, neglect to meet together as had become the habit of some. Which is why, starting particularly today, based on the whole of God's word and specifically Hebrews chapter 10, I want to call us to draw near to God with a true heart and full assurance of faith, our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water, to call us to hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promises faithful. And I want to call us to consider one another, how to stir each other up to love and good works by not neglecting to meet together as has become a habit, but encouraging one another as we meet together, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. In the days to come, let's start physically meeting together again as the church on Sunday whenever possible. Let's start meeting together again in groups. Go to mcleanbible.org, go to the location nearest you, start exploring how to re-engage in regathering. Or if you're not in Metro Washington, D.C., do this with a local church where you live. You know, I mentioned the last time we were in this text in the middle of a series on from surviving to thriving, and we used these two lemon trees, and one of those lemon trees we neglected, and the other we nourished, we fed, we gave it sunlight, the other one we didn't give anything to, we put it in the dark, and we saw the difference over just one month of one tree being neglected and the other one being nourished. But at the end of that series, one of our members volunteered to take both trees, including the neglected one, to try to nourish it back to life. And we said, it's all yours, and I want to show you a picture of what happened as a result. Now, if you saw that tree from when we gave that tree to this member, you would be shocked right now. that's, That's pretty impressive. This lemon tree growing in the middle of winter in Metro Washington, D.C. And I want to share that picture with you because I know for all of us this has been a hard year in so many ways. And it's pretty safe to say that many of us have found ourselves withering in certain ways and certain maybe many days in part by nature of not being able to do all that we're designed to do as followers of Jesus for ours and for others' spiritual health. But by God's mercy, we now have the opportunity to start nourishing that which has been withering, to meet instead of neglecting to meet to start doing again what God has designed us to do as a church, as the assembly of followers of Jesus that we are, as the 
family of brothers and sisters in Christ that we are. So let's take the steps together and serve and grow in all the ways God has designed us to do. Will you pray with me? And then hang on after we pray because I want you to see something really important before we close. But would you pray with you now? Oh God, I thank you for every single person who is listening or watching online right now. I thank you for all the different circumstances, amidst all the different circumstances they represent that they have chosen to be a part of this gathering right now online. God, I pray that you would make the way for as many of them as possible to begin to connect, reconnect, in many cases, with the assembly called your church, with the coming together, the meeting together that you've designed for your church. Pray that you would lead, guide, direct, and bless that process of reconnection in ways that lead to flourishing in the days to come for each of them individually, for families, and God, I pray in ways that will lead to the enjoyment of you and all that you've designed for our lives as members. I take it all untrained. 
shall fill my heart and pain and sorrow shall be stand be taken though sorrow need or death be mine yet I am not forsaken my father's care is around me there he holds me that I shall not fall and so to him I leave it that I shall not fall and so to him I leave it all Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries has the opportunities for anyone to volunteer in editing, producing the program, or even reviewing the broadcasts at our office. You don't have to be an expert. We are excited to teach anyone that is willing to learn. If you are interested in learning how to be an editor, producer, or even a reviewer, please contact us at 602-866-8999 or email us at heartandsoul.org at gmail.com. The following program is called The God of Abraham. Hello everyone, my name is Terry from The God of Abraham. Last time, we looked into the conversation between God and Abraham. God said he would destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. God promised Abraham that he wouldn't destroy Sodom and Gomorrah if there were ten righteous people found there. Why did Abraham mention 10 righteous people? Did he believe there were at least 10 righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah? Or was he thinking of specific people? Let's look into Genesis chapter 19. I'll read verses 1 through 11. The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, Please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night, and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered, we will spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. 
Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, No, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you and you can do what you like with them. But don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. Get out of our way, they replied. This fellow came here as a foreigner, and now he wants to play the judge? We'll treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break the door. But the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. Then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness so that they could not find the door. A terrible thing is happening. This is a very important scene. In history, there have been debates for a long period of time regarding homosexuality from the story in chapter 19. There have been oppositions about whether or not homosexuality was the reason why Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed. Today, we'll think about what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah from the Bible. In the beginning it says, the two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. Genesis chapter 13 says, Abraham and Lot returned from Egypt and separated. Genesis chapter 13 verse 2 says, Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Genesis chapter 14 verse 12 says, Lot was living in Sodom. After separating with Abraham, Lot first pitched his tent near Sodom, then he entered the city of Sodom and lived there. He pitched his tent when he was near Sodom, but when he entered the city of Sodom, he didn't pitch a tent but built a house and lived there. As we mentioned before in this program, even though God gave this land to Abraham as a possession, Abraham lived in a tent until he died. We must also be wanderers in this land. When it says Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city, it means Lot was respected in the city and had the power to rule. Lot lived outside Sodom, but when he moved into Sodom, he was in a high position. This is a good example showing us that when we choose what's good in our eyes, we will deeply enter the world of destruction without us even knowing. In other words, those who belong to God must not look at this world which will be destroyed but place their hope in heaven. Lot, who was in the gateway of the city, saw the two angels and recognized them. Then he begged them to enter his house. Those who study the Hebrew language describe this scene in an amusing way. Hebrew scholars say Lot had a very urgent manner of speaking. In an urgent way, Lot said, Enter my house. But the angel said, No, we'll just sleep outside. Then he said, First, just enter my house and then we'll talk. Lot attempted to quickly bring the angels inside the house. Why did he urgently bring the angels inside the house? Scholars say it's because Lot already knew homosexual rape would happen during the night. When a visitor came to the city, it happened all the time. Lot knew this, so when the two angels in the appearance of humans came, he tried to quickly take them inside the house before the people of Sodom saw them. I could imagine him saying, Don't talk outside. Hurry and enter before the other people see you. In verses 4 through 11, God proves why he had to destroy Sodom. In verses 3 through 4, 
it says the two angels entered Lot's house and ate dinner. In particular, it says they were eating bread without yeast. A bread without yeast is a bread that wasn't completely kneaded all the way, but baked right after mixing the dough. This shows how only a short period of time passed since the two angels entered the house. Verse 4 says, before they had gone to bed. This means they quickly ate the baked bread, and before they had gone to bed to sleep, something happens. The people of Sodom surrounded Lot's house and harassed Lot's family by making a commotion to bring the two angels out. The Bible says all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. Both young and old, from near and far, gathered together. It is saying that all the men in Sodom gathered before Lot's house. All the men in Sodom gathered because they wanted to have homosexual sex with the two new men who were two angels who appeared in the city today. This shows the condition of Sodom at that time. Sodom was a city fallen in obsceneness, lewdness, and sin. All the people in Sodom were in deep sin, but they didn't know it was a sin. However, there's something that needs to be said. What is the reason why they are trying to have homosexual relations? In other words, they are already married to women and have a family, but they are trying to have sexual relations with men because their motive is not love, but pleasure. These men of Sodom, regardless of age, have come out from everywhere during the night to fill their pleasure. This has become a very natural, repeated occurrence for them. None are righteous, and they are filled with the sin of loving pleasure. Therefore, it is not correct to say that the reason Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed was because of homosexuality. The Bible doesn't say that Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed because homosexuality was rampant. 2 Peter chapter 2 says there was depraved conduct of the lawless in Sodom and Gomorrah. Ezekiel chapter 16 verses 49 through 50 says they were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before God. If we combine these verses, it's saying that the land was filled with sin. Homosexuality is a sin God detests. However, God didn't destroy Sodom and Gomorrah solely because of that sin. God detests idol worship and even certain sexual relations between the opposite sex. Therefore, it is unbiblical to say that the reason Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed was simply because of homosexuality. It would be correct to say that they were destroyed because they were full of sin and chased after pleasure. It may seem like there's not much of a difference, but we must say it in this way. It is the biblical way. Lot rebukes the men of Sodom by saying, No, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Therefore, 2 Peter says, Lot was a righteous man who was tormented by their lawless deeds and didn't participate in their deeds. Lot may be called righteous because he criticized their sin. However, in verse 8 he says, Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you, and you can do what you like with them. In our age of morals, ethics, cultures, and values, Lot's action is incomprehensible. However, the Jewish rabbis at that time 
would explain the meaning of Lot's suggestion in this way. In the degree of sin, certain sins are worse than others. A male raping a female is a sin, but a male raping a male is a greater sin. If we think about it, it's true. Both are sins, but before God, a male raping a male is a greater sin than a male raping a female. Therefore, Lot said he would give his daughters and told them not to do such evil acts. This is what they said to Lot who rebuked them. Who do you think you are? We let a foreigner like you into the city and now you're trying to judge us? How dare you? Then they tried to harm him, but the angels reached out their hands and saved Lot. The Bible says the angels struck the men with blindness. The Hebrew word for blindness is sanvar. It means that I can see, but it can't see what it needs to see. For example, 2 Kings chapter 6 verse 18 says, When the Arameans attacked Israel, the hills were full of horses and chariots of fire. But through Elisha's prayer, God struck the Arameans with blindness so they couldn't see all the horses and chariots of fire. The same word for blindness was used in verse 11. Therefore, the people of Sodom could see with their eyes, but they couldn't see the door of Lot's house. The amusing part is that even though they couldn't see the door, they didn't give up but continued to look for the door. If a person is blinded by sin, he cannot see the things he should see, and although he can't see, he is still searching to find it. At times, we fall into sin and our eyes are darkened. At times, when we fall into sin and our eyes are darkened, we experience something similar to this. We can't see what we used to see, and we can't see the things we should see. At that time, we must realize we're in sin and turn back. We'll end God of Abraham here. Next week, we'll look into verses 12 through 38 and finish chapter 19. I'll see you next time. Goodbye.
now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.